found out a fascinating factoid the other day. The Dallas Symphony Orchestra was the first big city symphony orchestra to put on a performance after COVID. And not long after COVID either. The question is, did anybody show up? That's one of the challenges for the CEO of the Dallas Symphony, Kim Noltemy, who joins us right now. It's good to have you with us. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. That must have been a bold move. And, you know, when do you... When do you try to get an audience together? You probably had a bunch of performers that were ready to perform. Yeah, well, our musicians, I mean, they live to perform. So without that, their life is kind of empty. Uh, But we were a little nervous, you could imagine. Um, The governor of Texas gave everyone in the entertainment business the green light as of June 10th, 2020. And we thought, all right, we should try to take advantage of this. And we worked with UT Southwestern, the hospital, to come up with some medical protocols and tested our musicians and our staff daily and limited the audience quite a bit. Our first concert only had 50 people in a hall for 1,800. <laughs> that was quite something. Well, the acoustics Definitely must have been pretty social good. social distancing. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, no kidding. Well, you've come a long way from there, and you're packing them in again. So you've been here. You came. You At least you had, what, a good year and a half or so as head of the Dallas Symphony before all this hit. That's right. I started in January 2018, and if I didn't have that time, uh, it would have been a whole different story because fortunately I had the relationships not only with the musicians and the staff, but the board and funders in the community. And that was really um, what helped us so dramatically to have that support. You know, I was thinking about your job and it's a, I mean, any CEO, I guess, has a challenging job, but my goodness, I mean, you've got, you've got all your constituents, all the subscribers and supporters of the arts and supporters of the Dallas Symphony Orchestra and trying to keep them in, all the patrons. You've got a bunch of temperamental artists, probably a hundred on stage at any given point in time. You've got to be a fundraiser. And now you're a landlord. You, you took over running the, running the symphony hall. So how do you spread your time? Well, that is a good question, and I think that's what makes my job so fun is that every day is entirely different. Obviously, I have some priorities each day that I absolutely have to do, and, you know, talking with philanthropists and our board and other supporters is a top priority every single day, Uh, but so many things happen that are surprises and uh, that get us going sideways, and I just try to stay focused and not... Um, you know, keep my cool, because if if I lose my cool, then everyone will be in a state of panic. And, you know, there's so much fun stuff. I get to go to concerts and parties for like 30% of my job. Can you imagine? <laughs> so how could I ever complain about that? Yeah, yeah, good, good, good point. Good point. But everybody, everybody has a suggestion for you. I'm sure they're pulling you over and say, well, we could just do it this way. So tell me, one of the things you did when you came in is you took over the management of the Meyerson. The city had been doing it all along. Why was that important and how has that worked out? Well, I was shocked because I didn't know when I took this job that the Dallas Symphony did not manage the building or own the building. 
because I came from Boston where we did and in the Northeast, the cities don't own buildings. So it never even dawned on me to ask the question. And during the interview process, you know, everyone was saying how the Dallas Symphony raised all this money to create this incredibly iconic IMP building and it's rated top 10 in the world acoustically. And I thought, oh, this is going to be fantastic. And then my first day I walked in and I saw some leaks and some things going on, you know, just coming in the front door. And I said, oh, gosh, we really need to be on this. And they said to me, oh, it's not our building. And I was like, what? Oh, my God. All right. Well, I'm going to have to work on this immediately. And fortunately, the city was open to the idea of our taking it over. Now, of course, it's a blessing and a curse. The blessing is that we are going to be incredible stewards of this very important building both architecturally and musically and culturally in the whole United States, not just in in Dallas or Texas. But also, um, we control our own destiny, right? Because if it's our building, we can make sure that things are taken care of appropriately, things are fixed. We uh, negotiated some money from the city for deferred maintenance, and obviously we have to do fundraising on our own. Uh, and it's a lot of work, but, you know, the pride of uh, taking care of this incredible facility and also making sure it's open to more people, because when we took it over, there were 120 dark nights, nights where the hall was not being used. And now we have it used another probably 100 nights and we're closing in on making sure it's used every single day, which means more people come to use it and other organizations who never got to use it are able to have concerts and events here. You know, it really is a versatile video. I think of all of the all the things that I've either been involved in or, or attended down there. And it's I mean, award ceremonies, Green Hill School's graduation ceremony was held there forever. Um Lots of dialogues with with artists that have come to town, and I mean, it's a fascinating it's a fascinating venue that can be used for a lot of different purposes. For sure, and there are some groups that have been using it from the beginning, like the Dallas Winds and the um, Greater Dallas Youth Orchestra, Turtle Creek Chorale, and so on and so forth, and then. A bunch of new organizations are using it now who were not able to use it before. Um, for example, the Black Arts and Letters always did a Martin Luther King Day concert, but now they're uh, doing uh, more with us as a collaborative series, a jazz series, which is really fun. Uh, we've been doing uh, fundraising luncheons, Salvation Army, United Way, all kinds of great things like that, corporate events, things that just never happened here before. You know, one thing I've looked forward to, and I don't know that we've ever quite achieved, was really having this arts district. It's so neat to have you guys there, that you're right next to, you know, a world-class uh, opera facility and, and, and the Wiley Theater across the way, the Arts Magnet, and the other, and, and, and a few restaurants, and finally a hotel. It seems like there ought to be even more synergy down there, more activity. It ought to be more of a magnet. Yeah, I think you're making a really good point, and I have to compliment sort of the arts visionaries 40 years ago. We just had the 40th anniversary of the beginning of the creation of the Arts District, and 
honestly, it took 40 years to come to full fruition because without the residences and the lodging and uh, restaurants, then the arts district is just a nighttime place, right? And now it's a daytime, nighttime, and we're all working together to create activities during the day so we can have people coming out of the office buildings or their condos or apartments and walking around and hanging out in the different places. And literally that is just happening post-COVID with everything being back to normal. Is there pretty good cooperation among the arts that are all they're under the umbrella. Are, are, I mean, you must compete for audiences and dates. Well, I mean, I think we there's a little competition, of course, in any situation in in a, any city, the arts community, because we 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 all have stuff on Friday, Saturday sure. nights for sure. You know, some of us have other nights. Some have matinees on Sundays, et cetera, et cetera. But. The reality is the more people that come to the arts district, the better for everyone. And we're trying to figure out ways that we can, um, you know, introduce our organization to the the patrons of other organizations. So theater attendees to try out a symphony and symphony attendees to try out an event at ATPAC or at the Dallas Black Dance Theater and also connecting more with the museums, you know, so that if someone yeah. uh, was coming to a concert at the Meyerson, why don't they go to the Nasher first? Or why don't they go to the DMA first? Wouldn't that be a fun thing to pair together? So we're actively working on it. But again, COVID kind of took the wind out of our sails because we did begin that process before COVID. So you, you've been here long enough that you, you, you should have some observations. I know you spent over two decades at, at, the, at the Boston Symphony and seeing how they support the arts. Now, you missed Arthur Fiedler, but you still were there at a pretty good time. What, what, how, what's the difference? Uh, do you see the kind of support for the arts down here that you saw in the Northeast? I think we are seeing a different situation because so many people are moving into Dallas, um, especially in the areas surrounding the arts district itself and the areas surrounding it. I actually live in the arts district at the um, the Amley Fountain Place, which just opened in 2020. And that building, almost so many people that live in that building just moved to Dallas in the last couple of years. And so it's kind of a good example of what's happening in the city. And so what we really need to do is make sure we're capturing the attention of all of the new movers when they first get here, because whatever capture, captures your attention first is kind of what you get into your regular, like your lifestyle, your typical lifestyle. And so that's important. I think there's a long history of longtime Dallasites uh, really being great patrons of the arts. But what's happened in Dallas, and I, I'm certainly not a historian, but what I've been told is so many people have moved to to different places like Frisco and Arlington and Plano and folks who are living in those areas, even though it's not really a far drive, they have so much to do where they live that we're kind of losing the ability to attract those people on a regular basis. So we have a lot of constant rebuilding of our audiences to do all the time but people are moving from all over the country and a good percentage of them love the arts so it's our job it's our responsibility to make it easy and appealing and communicate well to them well it's 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 great fun to see everything thrive and 
and everything worked together and a lot of good things coming out of the Dallas Symphony. I know you've got this state-of-the-art video studio that you set up down, out there, so I think we're going to see see more of that. And, and we look forward to talking to you about it in the future. Thanks a lot for the time today. Well, thank you. It's, uh, we're huge fans. Oh, that's great. Kim Nolteman is the CEO of the Dallas Symphony Association. And our guest today, for more of our conversation, go to krld.com slash CEO. I'm David Johnson, News Radio 1080 KRLD.